I don't want to sound too dramatic, but I have the potential of passing out this evening. <laughs> I've been a little faint today, so I'm, so I'm in little waves, and it's um, a little odd. I think it's something in the, maybe some kind of allergic reaction, but I'm going to just go for it anyway. <laughs> it definitely cut into my, um, my ability to reflect on and create a, a discourse for this evening, but I'm somewhat, maybe even more used to just uh, seeing what comes uh, than being excessively uh, well-prepared. I do generally know the topic that I'd like to speak about tonight, <laughs> and it was, uh, it's inspired both by the time of the retreat that we find ourselves and on the introduction of the mindfulness directed to the body that, uh, that James did this morning. And you've probably realized by now that this whole process that we're engaged in is not about an, any kind of out-of-body experience. It's really about in the body. In fact, there's one discourse that I could not find when I was looking for it today from the what are called the numbered sutras of the Buddha, called the Anguttara Nikaya, that's the numbered suttas, where the Buddha expounds about how if there's one thing, one thing in this world that leads to the, uh, the lessening of suffering, of, um, of the sure heart's release, of the ease, of, of freedom, it's mindfulness directed to the body. So it really comes down to the body. And of course, I'm having this little body episode. And as James was saying this morning, when something in our body calls our attention, uh, our attention becomes quite riveted. And so it can be an amazing wake-up call, you could say. And that is the invitation throughout the, throughout the teachings. Everything that the everything that the Buddha realized, and we wouldn't be be here if it wasn't for this realization, everything that he realized was dependent on, as James mentioned last night, this fathom-long body. He had the eyes to, he had the the felt experience of, of, I think I mentioned it the first night, he had this felt experience of queasiness, of restlessness. He felt that through the body felt restless because he saw that even though he had this relatively privileged existence, he had as good as he had it as good as anybody could have. Very much like people in in the uh, developed world tend to have it, relatively speaking. Of course, there are lots of ups and downs, highs and lows within our within our own circumstances. But relatively speaking, a lot of privilege, a lot of pleasure, access to ways of stimulating ourselves, keeping ourselves occupied, preoccupied, distracted, unseen in the history of the world we have. And and he lived in a very similar way. And he realized, though, because everything that he experienced left, even though it brought him lots of pleasure... Uh, music, sensuality, sight, sound, smells, taste, everything, food, even though it brought him a, a sense of great delight in moments, he saw that there was, a, um, there was a passing, as James was mentioning, how everything changes. He, he felt the passing. It, in fact, he later described this 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 sinking feeling when things pass away, he called it anicca dukkha. Anicca is the word for impermanence and change. Dukkha is the word, word for uh, discomfort, uh, queasiness, that which is hard to bear, just hard to be with. And he felt this kind of sinking feeling when he saw that the, all the, the best experiences were unreliable. And that restlessness that he felt through this fathom long body. Fathom is, I, I, was, I asked someone and they said it's some, somewhere around five to six feet. 
It's not exactly a word that we use in our vocabulary, no. But he felt it through the body. And then he, as he, in, out of his restlessness, but this, this brewing longing that he also felt to find something reliable, he started wandering around and with his eyes, the eyes, which are one of the, one of the six sense experiences, we normally talk about the five senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. The sixth sense door is considered the mind. And so in some way, I might, we might as well say it as a little sneak preview, we'll talk about mind and the different mind objects. Uh, and we'll, we say that the, a thought, and all those thoughts that you had, did you know that you Someone said you've had, you had about 65,000 of them today. That's some statistic. And, and that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. <laughs> but those 65,000 thoughts arose and were, uh, and they arose in, in the mind. So those thoughts are to our door of perception called mind as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue. It's just a natural sense experience. So any notion of thinking that our practice is to be rid of a natural sense experience is a misunderstanding of practice. Of course, we're, not enc- we're encouraging you to make that shift from uh, being lost in, absorbed in our thinking, to noticing it, be able to comprehend it as, a sen- as another sense experience. But it was through the sense experience of the eyes that the Buddha saw in his restless wanderings, he saw sickness. He saw a sick person. Now that may be, it seems odd that it would be so unusual to see a sick person, but it reminds us of our own tendency to not see sickness and to distract ourselves from it and not really fully comprehend the fact of sickness. Of course, when we get sick, when I feel like I'm about to pass out, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's what the Buddha called a heavenly messenger. It wakes us up to reality. So he, with his eyes, depending on this body, saw sickness, and then he saw an, a very elderly person, an old person. And then with his eyes, and affected by it with his heart, and being able, able to feel the impact of that, he saw a corpse. And after a little reflection, which he did with, his, with the door of perception called the mind, he realized, this is going to happen to me too. I don't know why I laugh when I say that. <laughs> but somehow we tend to ignore this fact. It, that I can borrow the title from Al Gore's film. It's an inconvenient truth. At that point, through the impact on his mind and body, which depends on this, this individuality, he experienced a kind of shock. A sh- being that face-to-face with reality, a shock and uh, some confusion and dismay at the futility that uh, he realized the futility at trying to find something stable and lasting and permanent in this world of constantly changing conditions. And that left him with a deep question of where in this, where in this world of change, what's it all about? And it caused a deep existential question. What is it all about? Do we just, are we just born through no fault of our own? Do we then grow up, have some fun, have a lot of stuff and lose it and then die? Is that all there is to it? There must be something more about this. We don't often just stop and think about this, but that's how it is. We certainly don't want to land in, in thinking about this and, and worrying about it and, and dwelling on it as a, as a, a kind of, um, as a kind of uh, complication in our mind. We want to just acknowledge it, the truth of it, and let it move us, and it, as it did the Buddha. Fortunately, with his eyes, 
and his openness, his attention, he saw a, a renunciate. He saw someone who exemplified uh, living a, a life of an, someone with a rich inner life, someone who, whose life expressed an example of simplicity and uh, valuing some kind of inner stability and calm and a, a kind of light, a, a sense of freedom. But the best he could do at the time was to, after having seen that and been moved to think that there might be something in that style of living that would be helpful for him. But really this just symbolizes the going against the stream of what everyone else is doing. It doesn't necessarily mean changing your residence. It just means looking differently. It means stopping. And someone exemplifies that sense of stopping, keeping quiet, look within. You can even sense it even one moment here when you just stop, even as I'm speaking, stop, keep quiet for a moment, look within. And all of a sudden, that inner life opens up. And something in our heart says, yes. Not initially, always. <laughs> and something in us says, yes. Stop you know, moving, moving your arms so much. Stop Stop running away from this moment by running after this and that. Something in our heart says, this is good for me. So he thought that he saw that example and he decided he would find the best teacher around and he went and found the teachers who could teach him how to collect himself, how to help create the conditions, the inner conditions for concentration to arise, for there to be a sense of one-pointedness, a sense of a calm abiding. And he quickly, because he was so eager at this point, so much had he, had he been struck by the reality of life, really taken it in, that he took to the meditation practice with, with a lot of gusto. And very quickly, his mind was well collected and composed, uh, felt the suffusion of calm, his nervous system eased up a little bit. And you've probably all, in the last few days, in spite of going through the roller coaster of purification and then periods of purity and calm, but you've likely tasted a little bit of that, um, that sense of being home for a few moments. How many of you have? Just a little bit of almost everyone. Because it's that home, that sense of here, it's your natural state. It's natural to us. It's just we've been too busy going elsewhere for our sense of well-being. But, of course, we get a sense of that. We get a taste of it when we sit here. But then we, at the same time, our mind gets much brighter. And in that brightness, we see how much our mind wants to run from here. Any of you notice that? Thank you. So he, just like you, sat down, put his mind in his body, his body in his mind. He collected his attention on that single, a single point of just being here and now, and he experienced what's sometimes been described as samadhi or deep concentration, super mundane, a happiness, a, what's sometimes described as an unmixed happiness, where his mind was, for a time at least, didn't want to be somewhere else. And I know this may ring true for you. There may, be a few, may have been a few moments today where you didn't want to be somewhere else. It's so sad that that's rare in this life, <laughs> since this, is the, this present moment's the only one we have. It's amazing how much time we spend uh, making other plans, as John Lennon put it. But at that time, at that, those moments when he felt suffused with this great pleasure of concentration, the great joy of concentration, and saw how healing it is, and, and you probably are getting more sense of healing than you even know, just by the quiet and by that steadiness and that support, continuity of practice, 
But he saw that the states of mind that he entered into were beautiful. And they seemed to last a lot longer than the fleeting pleasures of the last concert or the or for you the last uh, the last electronic uh, object that you bought it, it it this concentration seemed to last quite a while but then he saw that even that deliciousness even that super mundane happiness was still um, unreliable it was also subject to change and impermanence. So his problem was not solved, even though he registered the fact that it's really, really useful to have a mind that's well collected and composed. Really useful to be able to stay here for a little while. But he saw that it was that it was actually most useful to want a few different things to give you an introduction to a life that is um, very immediate, that is, um, that is pervaded with calm rather than excessive stimulation. And so this being quiet begins a slow process of deconditioning our tendency toward compulsion. It just loosens it up a little bit. And you, you feel it as a has a more sense of being home where you are. And I mentioned it before, a more sense of passion for the present. Less desire to be somewhere else. I'm reminded as I say that, this passage from a teacher named Nisargadatta where he says, when the mind is, is kept away from its preoccupations, which means you just collect it right here, when it's free of its preoccupations or kept away from them, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll see that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known. But you recognize it at once as, your, as something about your own nature. And once you've had that taste, you won't be the same person again, he says. He says, the, the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision. So he's acknowledging in this that it doesn't stay. But it's bound to return if you keep coming back, if the effort is sustained and, uh, and attachments loosen until life is, as he says, supremely concentrated in the present, where you, li- you learn to live in the present. But he saw that this, the rarefied states of mind didn't last. And he saw that whatever they were teaching was not liberation. It was very be- beneficial, but it wasn't freedom. It wasn't that, it wasn't that, uh, because it wasn't freedom, because freedom would be something that doesn't, doesn't come and go. Freedom would be something that doesn't depend on whether your mind is quiet or busy. In fact, he he described the whole body of different kinds of pleasures as wonderful as they are in our life. The whole of our world of sense pleasures, that which is so useful in, in giving us moments of pleasure, gladdening our heart, but is so, so um, ineffective at giving us lasting happiness but he described that whole body of pleasures that we tend to be, to apply what the Buddha called uh, misplaced faith in. He said that whole body was, he called it the happiness of sense pleasures, that there's a lot of pleasure in it, but he also called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. He called it conditioned happiness. You're happy when you have it and you're not happy when you don't. And he saw that that was not the kind of happiness that would really set us free. And unfortunately, there was no one else to help out at the time, saying, practice non-clinging. Nobody around to say, let go, let be, that you're 
Freedom has nothing to do with what's going on and has everything to do with whether your mind is in a state of contention with it or wants it to be different. No one around to tell him that. So he had to make a few more mistakes. With this fathom-long body, he then started to do ascetic practices, basically wanting to de- trying to deny his body any pleasure. Went to the other extreme. Starve his body. And, and it, it just, it almost killed him. He, he, almost, he almost died. And his mind became quite weak and he had no mental strength, no capacity to flow with anything. So the extreme of denial, the extreme, extreme of indulgence, he realized that the, the, neither of these saw that whatever he was looking for had to go beyond both of those, had to be not dependent on either. Real, a real sense of freedom. I assume you're interested in a real sense of freedom, not just partial. Maybe you didn't even know you were, but maybe you will be after, after you work with your mind a little bit. It's so rare to, to stop and really take a look at what, what we do every day, what we practice. What you see in your mind while you're here is what you have practiced, knowingly or unknowingly. And so that's why, because so much of it is unknowing, we, we have to meet ourselves with so much kindness and mercy, because most of it is, we didn't even know what we were doing. But that's the hope of this, is that we can actually wake up to our... We, we have within ourselves this capacity to be free, to have peace in this, as the Buddha put it, in this very life. So again, there was nobody to help him out, and so he finally just sat down after eating some food and getting a little strength. And he did then what, what we're doing here. He collected his attention, moment to moment, let his mind come into his body, brought that sense of harmony, stability, focus, that calm abiding, felt the joy of being home again here, felt the joy of not wanting to be somewhere else. But he didn't, at least as some of the translations say, he didn't let that joy overtake him. He didn't get intoxicated by the joy. He felt it, just as James was recommending. Enjoy it. Enjoy it when it comes. Accept it when it comes. As, one of, as our teacher Punjaji used to say, accept what comes and reject what goes. As though you <laughs> planned it that way. <laughs> accept it. But then say goodbye. So he didn't let that joy overtake him. And instead, he applied the, the, the strength of heart and mind that comes when we keep collecting ourselves, when we keep orienting ourselves to the present moment. He used that strength of mind and the increasing uh, light that grows the more you're here. I don't know if you've noticed yet. I'm sure you have. That... When you look at the sights now, they're more vivid. When you hear the sounds, they're more vivid. When you feel sensations, they're alive. You know, we've, of course we've been caught up in the idea of our body or the picture of our body that lives in the mirror. And so it's, it's natural when, once we start paying attention that our body lights up from the inside. But it all becomes more vivid. Everything does. The taste of food, how about that? It's like you've never tasted before. This is the result of that collectedness that we, again and again, orienting ourselves, comprehending what, it, what is alive in this present moment. Reality is living. It's so different than past and future, which are simply you know, mental, uh, mental formations. There, there's, in some ways, there's no there there. But there's clearly a, a here, not the idea of here, but there's a, there's a living feeling. That you are, that you are, 
that you are touching in each instant and being touched by. Everything is connected right now in this living present. So easy to miss. So he used the the light of attention, the power of mind. Instead of to get high, he used it to carefully, with interest, with relaxation, what's the other one? Kindness. Kindness. (laughs) He used it to carefully, (laughs) carefully, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) this is probably really good for me to laugh like this. To carefully observe the the flow of experience. So he sat down and paid attention, just like you are. And as he paid attention, he explored the sensations of his body, mindfulness directed to the body. You you know that his teachings came out of the out of the the. Um, the challenges of his own life. They're not just these theoretical. They're, all the teachings are really a living, an expression of a living practice that you're doing. So he paid attention to the flow of sensations in his body, just as you were invited to do today. And because his mind was pretty steady, it wasn't terribly reactive. Oh, I just got one of those little woozy waves. The more he paid attention to the details of his experience, few things happened. He started to see something common to all the sensations. Again, James mentioned this, that all the sensations were what he thought was initially, oh, this is, this, is, this is my body. And from a certain vantage point, more, more um, conventional vantage point, said, this is a body. But when he experienced it directly, he saw that all this, this whole experience of what we call superficially body was this field of incessantly changing sensation. Like little flashes of light, points of feeling. Never the same from one moment to the next. And he noticed another thing, that they were all changing all by themselves. There was nobody in there changing them. That's a little shocking. He couldn't find any Siddhartha in those sensations. They were just sensations. And then he noticed that uh, he was visited by all of these states of mind, the same ones that you've been visited by today. And in fact, even after his, his awakening, he was still visited by, by what are considered the, the voices or the um, voices of Mara. Mara is the personification of, the, of, what's, of those voices in us of temptation, of, of those voices that say, not here, not now. Better to have your, better to get off your cushion and be somewhere else, there and then, not here and now. That Mara tells you all the reasons why you can't be happy now. Any of you have any of those thoughts today? (laughs) That's Mara. Mara is enticing you into looking away from this moment by believing that... um, by actually holding your heart hostage for some imagined future that never arrives because future is just an idea. This time is always now. But he saw something about Mara 
and all the voices that usually come in the form of, comes in so many ways, but it comes most obviously to us on the retreat in the form of what are called the five hindrances. The mind that becomes filled with desire. Desire for the end of the sitting even. The end of the sitting becomes the secret to happiness. Or the end of the retreat already. I, I, I was mentioning in one of the groups today that usually you know, James was saying some things about, about wanting to arrive on the, forgetting the, the first few days. And I was thinking that most people that I've met with on retreat, often in the first two days, they in some ways plan their escape. <laughs> this is the mind that's... Uh, that's associating one's well-being with something that isn't here, that isn't now. And our, of course, we're taught from the moment we're born to look to what's next for our sense of well-being. I brought with me Sogil Rinpoche's description of our tendency toward feeding the compulsive, addictive, wanting mind and how that entrances us. He says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is that endlessly searching for the future that never arrives, the, the defect of our mind that thinks that our happiness is some other place in time. It's brilliant selling of samsara and it's barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. As one Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all this this samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Just to put it in a slightly more lighthearted way. (laughs) Bo Lozoff says, we are endlessly trying to keep up with the Joneses. But he says it's time that we see that the Joneses are not happy. (laughs) Anyway. As Hafiz put it, learn to recognize these counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. But the way that we learn to recognize the counterfeit coins is exactly the way the Buddha did. He saw, as he paid attention to those voices of Mara that says, the best is yet to come. Tomorrow will be, uh, tomorrow is where happiness is, not today. He saw those voices as just voices. He saw the wanting mind as the wanting mind. And not only that, 
that he saw that that wanting mind, especially when it goes unnoticed, it completely entrances us. But when it's noticed, and when you feel that feeling of wanting with this body, you feel that, that sense of hunger, that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of I can't be happy until I have it. The, the effect of feeling that, a few different things, you will realize that you don't want to keep practicing having that feeling over and over. It's not because you shouldn't want. It's not about adopting a new religion. It's about seeing that what you're doing, experiencing directly, that it's causing you pain. It's causing you an increasing sense of dissatisfaction. And then the natural, compassionate response of our heart is to begin to let go. It's not about becoming a good Buddhist. I always like to remember that the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. He just saw things the way they were. And then he shared the Dharma that he learned, the teaching that he learned. Another thing that we notice if we make that shift from being just carried along by the trance of wanting to actually feeling it in our body, noticing the story of it and everything I want and everything, everything, every place that I want to go and everything I think I need to be happy, noticing the story, bowing to the story, don't shut, shut it down, don't necessarily intentionally extend it either. Notice the story, but keep expanding. Feel that effect in your body. And if you really stay with that physical experience in the body, we introduced it today, you'll see that those, those, that state of mind as it manifests in your body begins to, and it, this is its nature, it begins to change, begins to melt away. And often, we have not necessarily full, fulfilled the desire that has been driving us, but we've experienced in that moment the, the cessation of that desire, not by acting it out, but by recognizing that its nature is to change, as is every state of mind, as is every thought, as is every sensation. This is what the Buddha noticed under the Bodhi tree. The same with the, with the, um, the other states of mind, the flip side of the wanting mind, it's a, a different kind of wanting, is the aversive mind. Any of you have any aversion today? Did, did you see the way the mind, that it, the tension of it just spawned or it spawned this drama of who was the reason for all of your misery and suffering? And I don't mean to make light of that because it's really painful. But we do have this phenomena that becomes very bright on retreats, very loud. And that's the phenomena called, on the desire side, it's called the VR. How many of you don't know about the VR? Just so I, I don't want to go... A lot of you don't. Well, the VR is the initials for Vipassana Romance, where there's someone who you catch out of the corner of your eye who either looks good in some way or reminds you of someone, and it produces a pleasant feeling. So desire is usually associated with a pleasant feeling. And that pleasant feeling produces a feeling of liking. I like that. And that liking produces a little charge. And before you know it, that charge creates a little internal pressure. And the next thing you know, the secondhand version of that, that pressure is just flowing in fantasy about the mating and the dating. And whoa, here. See, I'm getting dizzy again. Mating, dating, marriage, divorce. <laughs> all within the span of a minute. <laughs> and it, even as I say this, it's such a reminder that you know, we're sitting here quietly, nothing's happening. <laughs> Nothing ever happened, but it's high drama in our mind. And it's all a dream in a way. It's our mental dream. So we can begin to notice that. On the other hand, it's... Uh, it's a dream, but 
that it registers that strong longing that all of us, that deep longing that all of us have, but it gets misplaced by uh, being, being tethered to a relationship that may or may not happen. To be tethered to anything in this world that is ultimately unreliable. doesn't mean that you shouldn't have relationships and love in your life, but in any moment to have your well-being dependent on anything is a kind of bondage, and we can feel that. So the flip side is, the, is what's called the VV, which is called Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where there, there's someone who takes too much food, know someone that had a, a VV with me many years ago. They saw me take a lot of food in a long practice period, and they, they had a lot of aversion to my excessive uh, food intake. <laughs> but it could be anything. It could be all the... the it could be... You know, it's remarkable. I, I debate about whether to say this or not, but sometimes the the kitchen gets the, the VRs, it gets the love notes that are just extraordinary, but it also gets the hate mail about how all the ways the food should be different. And at some point in the retreat, you will get triggered, you'll feel that aversion, and your mind will proliferate with this whole, this whole notion, believable notion of how life should be in order for you to be happy. And um, this is just the aversive mind. What we do in our practice is we notice the story of it, we feel it in our body, feel the pain of aversion, feel the pain of ill will, feel the pain of anger, feel the burning of it. Instead of suppressing it or continually acting it out, we recognize it as another stormy, as another weather pattern, as another changing condition, and begin to see that it arises all by itself. You didn't ask to feel miserable and hate everyone here, but it arises. It takes a shape in the body, and then it passes away. And in that way, it reveals itself as not, not personal, not me, not mine, a changing condition. We can begin slowly to see how everything has that impersonal quality. There's no, there's no one pulling the levers. Even the, even the lever of knowing is doing itself. Consciousness, knowing things, both coming and going. It's wild. It's mysterious. Same with other states of restlessness, the common ones, restlessness and agitation that often come in the form of guilt and worry, Dullness. These are states of mind that can be that can be known. And doubt. A lot of doubt. Any of you have doubt today? I can't do this. Everybody else is getting enlightened except me. There's the story of doubt. Or, or just making doubt often comes in the form of judging everybody. Oh, everybody looks here looks so spiritual. You know, it's just too too much too much this for me. And, this is just a disguise for doubt. Or you start comparing it to some other practice. That's another disguise for doubt. But doubt will undermine, it'll just zap your, your juice. Especially if it goes unnoticed. But if it's recognized, it, like everything else, shows itself as, as a changing condition. It's just another weather pattern. Very, very debilitating. But once you bring it into that light of awareness it becomes your path, it becomes your practice, instead of your, your, um, your burden. And this reminds me that as the Buddha paid attention to these states of mind and all the different thoughts and images and the sensations, rather than it being, uh, being weakened or, or, um, or um, diminished by facing reality, everything he paid attention to just made his mind, made his, vit- his energy system brighter and brighter. 
until, it, one way it's been described in the teachings, until his mind was shining in its clarity. I know Sharda mentioned the mirror-like nature of the mind on the first night. But, the, but that's exactly the effect of each moment that you, in a sense, rub your attention against a sensation, a thought, a feeling, a sound, and you're right there with it. It has the effect, the effect like rubbing two sticks, of, of igniting or brightening the mind. In fact, in one of his suttas, he said, luminous is this mind, brightly shining. But it, it's colored by all the, these states that come. Thus, the unlearned or the people who don't practice, they don't understand, so they get lost in these. And he goes on to say, luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it's untouched. That shining light is untouched by whatever visits. So the more he paid attention, the brighter his mind brighter his mind got, the brighter your mind will get if you really pay attention. And the brighter his mind came, became, the less reactive he was. The more things were just reflected in his mind. Everything was felt, all the feelings, all the thoughts, but they, they weren't sticking. He was not building a monument to them. He wasn't thinking about what it meant about him and what it meant about his past or his future. He was seeing things in their, in, for once, in a, in directly, simply. He said at a certain point, he, says, he said in one of his most famous sutras, he said, in the scene, there's just what's seen. How often are we that simple? In the heard, just what's heard. And the smell, just what's smelled. And the tasted, just what's tasted. And the felt, just what's felt. And the cognized, just what's cognized. That's all. No me, no you, no self at all. Just what there is. We don't have to have a whole view about everything. But we do have views. We do have views. And what we do with those is we notice those as well. We don't try to, de- to delete them. We use them all in the service of brightening our mind. And instead of working with getting rid of things, we work with, with finding that balance and, and non-reactivity that can allow the, all the craziest thoughts and feelings, the, a little more challenging with the more difficult pain. I, I, can't, I definitely was challenged today by my heart going... And feeling like I was going to pass out. And even tonight, somehow it's not bothering me tonight as I'm speaking. But, but being able to, to accommodate that, because that's what's happening. And that the suffering really is, is the piling on that James spoke about last night. The com- compounding it with adding meaning and significance and, and drama. But we do dramatize, so we notice that. But we begin to see the difference between the drama and the simplicity of what's happening. As, as James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. <laughs> Just the bird. So as, just getting back to the story, as the Buddha's mind stopped grabbing, pushing away, stopped getting so identified and building a story about what was going on, he fell as you will, as you do in the moments when you're here and steady, fell into a, 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 a kind of happiness, a taste of a kind of happiness and well-being that uh, he hadn't really known. One of our, uh, in Joseph Goldstein's book, Experience of Insight, he called this vipassana happiness. The happiness, the joy of equanimity. The happiness of a well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. That's able to welcome it all, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows.
and he saw a glimpse that this was a, this was a taste of freedom, right? because it really didn't matter what was going on. And then as he relaxed there for a while, and still not having completely solved the riddle of, of this reliable refuge, this deep longing that he had to be free. In a flash of insight, though, his, his heart opened. Heart-mind, with the same word. His heart opened. And in a flash of insight, he realized that whatever that freedom was that he was looking for was, the, was none other than the very nature of his own heart, very nature of his own mind. That the very nature of your mind, my mind, nature of mind itself is free. Right now. The one, the very nature of the mind through which you're perceiving right now. The mind has no beginning, no end, no color, no depth. It's just open. It's like an open field. Your home is in, is in that openness. It's so natural to each of us. And we taste it when we're not at least for a moment, we're not consulting our memory about who we are. One of my teachers says, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. <laughs> but we have thoughts and we have past thoughts. And we don't get rid of them, we notice them. We realize then that we can't be defined by any of that. So the Buddha realized a sense of freedom. Couldn't put it into words too subtle, and he didn't think anybody could get it, but then he saw that there were those with a little dust, because part of the effect of having seen through all this this dividing that the mind does, our mind does, seeing through that illusion of separateness that is constantly being created in our mind, part of seeing through that illusion is seeing through the illusion of others. And what that expresses itself of as James spoke of last night to some degree, it expresses itself as this boundless sense of, of connection. It expresses itself when it meets beings as love, when it meets suffering as, as compassion, when it meets um, someone's good fortune, it expresses itself as joy. And when it holds it all, it expresses itself as this uh, boundless uh, capacity to hold it all, to, to find balance in the midst of it all. And with that openness of heart and that sense of connection, he saw that there were those with just a little dust on their eyes, that if they were pointed back to themselves, rather than to, to the mall, <laughs> pausing before you go to the mall, putting your mind in your body, I, I'm half joking, but to turn the other way, to turn toward the awakening that, um, that capacity that we have, that nature that we have to be free right now. And then to use all the, the habits of mind that you've been seeing, to use them all, to learn about them, to study them, to see with confidence and conviction that, they, that nothing that you do or uh, nothing that you think can completely define you and you can learn through paying attention to all of that, to see those common characteristics that the, everything changes, that you can't really hold on to things, that things are just happening, and selfless in that way. So he looked first for the most sincere he remembered his most sincere practitioner friends, his ascetic friends, the ones that are willing to kill themselves for freedom, <laughs> even though they were misguided. He thought that they might be able to understand what he had learned. And when they saw him, they were taken by, his, by the radiance that flowed from his. And, and I guarantee you, by the end of this retreat, all of you will, in some measure, show your own intrinsic radiance. It's just natural to you just gotten a little bit dulled out. 
But the first thing he told them, because it was a, all that life was a complicated journey. He said, life, the life, if you're the definition of birth, it's the leading cause of stress, of sickness, of old age, and death. It's the leading cause of experiencing in this life the sense of loss, of not getting what you want, of not wanting what you get. Everybody, no matter what being is born into this world, will have this experience, some measure of it. It comes with the territory. And you need to just welcome this. Don't spend your life running away from this truth. What turns that, is that basic stress into real suffering is the tendency of our mind, the sec- this is the second truth, the tendency of our mind to want things, to continually, in so many ways, to want things to be different than the way they are. That expresses itself as that craving for more, wanting things, wanting places, wanting people, wanting to become something, wanting to have continued this, continued that, that constant state of, of craving and becoming, or to want it to all shut down. That's the same, it's craving in the reverse way. And that can get pretty extreme too. We can really dull ourselves out, we can really hurt ourselves with the craving for non-becoming. He said this cause of the suffering element of the basic stress called dukkha This cause must be abandoned. We need to learn to let go. We need to learn to to relinquish the causes of of suffering. Fortunately, he didn't stop there. He said, there's an end. And when you let go, you will experience for yourself a falling away of that stress, that mental stress that keeps you keeps your fists so tight and keeps your heart so tight and keeps you in that little narrow vortex of, of dissatisfaction, you will know a sense of freedom. He says, this must be realized. And as Ajahn Chah put it, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. And if you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Struggles with the world will have come to an end. Of course, it's easy to talk about letting go. He didn't stop there. He said, there's a path. And that path is the one that we are cultivating here. It includes purifying, developing the happiness that comes with being non-harming, of speaking kindly, inwardly, outwardly, of not causing harm with our livelihood, not causing harm with our speech, not, not causing harm with the excessive use of intoxicants, lying, stealing, cheating, any of that. The happiness that comes from living a non-harming life. And then developing the happiness that comes from having a well-collected and composed mind, and a, a, a mind that's here and present and bright and not so busy wanting to be somewhere else. That brings happiness. And then the great happiness that comes through seeing things just the way they are, through recognizing that deep sense of connection that you have at all moments, at all times, with all life, and then letting spring from that the most, um, the most wholesome, you could say, intentions to, um, to stay in touch with that, to live simply, to renounce the cause of your suffering, to be kind, to be caring, to be generous, to be patient, all the qualities that come, all the, the best intentions come from the understanding that uh, we are affecting ourselves and we're affecting each other in every moment. And that there is no you that exists independently apart from all of life. And this path, so the the end of suffering must be realized, and this path the Buddha suggested as his prescription, it must be cultivated, it must be, it must be created. 
using the fabric of your own life. Not looking like anybody else's, but developing your heart and your actions and, and your understanding. And that's what we're doing here, moment by moment by moment. So if you think about it, a whole process that I described, you can get overwhelmed by uh, you start thinking, I have to do so much in order to be free. But it's fulfilled by every moment of mindful attention, kind attention. Because in that moment, that moment of attention is free. Every moment of attention is free of wanting things to be different. If you're just open to what's happening, it's free of pushing things away. It's free of the whole story of you. It's things just the way they are. So let that sink in, things as they are, things as they have come to be in this moment. So easy to overlook this. Anyway, thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. beings have all kinds of happiness. The happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of harmlessness, the happiness of concentration, the happiness of mindfulness, and ultimately the happiness of freedom. May all beings be happy. May all beings be free. about a half